Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. The goal of the Global Health Initiative, Exercise is Medicine, is to make physical activity assessment and promotion a standard in clinical care, connecting health care with evidence-based physical activity resources for all patients. While the value of exercise is clear for areas like cardiovascular medicine, applications to neurologic disorders has not been formalized. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the use of exercise to combat neurodegeneration and provide neuroprotection. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Joining me for today's conversations are Drs. Jay Albers and Susan Linder. Dr. Albers is Vice Chair of Innovation in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute and researcher in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Linder is the Director of Research in Cleveland Clinic's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and a researcher in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Jay and Susan, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Jay, it's my understanding that the investigations you've undertaken in recent years are the direct result of personal experiences you had with exercise. And like a lot of discoveries, uh, serendipity plays a role. Take me back to where all this started for you. You know, Glenn, this really started in, well, either a cocktail party in Atlanta or the fields of Iowa. Uh, so back in 2003, uh, I was in Atlanta at Emory and Georgia Tech and was a you know early cyclist. And there was a uh, individual who was in some of my studies who had Parkinson's and we uh, met her friends and started cycling with her husband. And we were at a party and she said, you know, I want to spend more time with my husband. And I said, oh, I have a great idea. We should ride a tandem bike or you guys should ride a tandem bike across the state of Iowa uh, for this event called Ragbri, the Register's Annual Great Bike Ride Across Iowa. Think of Ragbri as Woodstock on wheels with worse music, but better food. So anyway, we got there in 2003, and Ralph and Kathy, uh, Kathy being the PD patient, uh, were going to ride the tandem bike across the state, and really just to raise awareness for Parkinson's, right? Because before that, I had uh, some you know, friends and colleagues who had been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and they really viewed it as a death sentence. You know, they were told, you have Parkinson's, and in five years, this is going to happen, eight years, 10 years, you're going to be in a chair. And, you know, that really wasn't our mindset. And so our real goal was to go to Iowa and raise awareness for Parkinson's that it's not a death sentence. So Ralph and Kathy were going to ride tandem across the state and, uh, you know, just be examples of that. Uh, we got halfway through the first day. And again, riding in a tandem with your spouse is always a challenge. I said, hey, tell you what, why don't I ride with Kathy the rest of today and you could ride my bike? So we did that and we had a very nice time. And so turns out we rode the rest of the week together. And a couple of things happened while we were in Iowa. You know, Kathy had uh, micrographia. So micrographia in Parkinson's is the smallness and an illegible handwriting. And so when she sat down, she wrote a birthday card out and it said, happy birthday, Gary. And her handwriting looked beautiful. And I said, who wrote this? And she said, 
I did. Isn't it amazing? And it was because that micrographia was gone. And so it was really after that, that, you know, she said, I didn't, doesn't feel like I have Parkinson's when I'm on the bike and things like that. And so that was really the first, first that we sort of observed it, but I quite frankly, sort of, you know, was very much focused on deep brain stimulation at the time. And so it kind of pushed it to the side thinking, well, we're in Iowa, that's kind of God's country. And maybe she's just feeling better from the pie and ice cream. And then in 2007, we went back, uh, we had gone back a number of years, but we went back and we had a patient who had deep brain stimulation. So something I was very familiar with. And he said one day he wanted to ride with me. And I said, great. And he said, well, let's test this whole exercise thing. So he turned his deep brain stimulation uh, system off. And, uh, you know, he's a movement disorders neurologist himself. And so he had Parkinson's. He turned his DBS off and he had, you know, standard tremor and uh, things came back as soon as he turned DBS off. And then we went on this ride uh, on a tandem bike and, you know, we stopped and, and had a, a donut or something. And he looked at me and he said, where did my tremor go? And I said, I'm not sure. So we, we hopped back on the bike, finished it. And we have some very striking video to show his you know, pre and post. And it was really then that I said, okay, there's something going on here with exercise because I had seen the effects of DBS, you know, many times. And now, you know, basically exercise, despite not being on DBS, uh, his symptoms had been mitigated. And so that's really, again, very serendipitous uh, that we ever uh, stumbled across this concept of forced exercise for, for Parkinson's. Uh, I love the story. Just love the story. I guess we just all need to pay more attention to what's going on around us, right? Yeah, for uh, sure. The answers are there. We just, you know, patient, uh, you know, physicians often often say to me, "I've never seen that," and what I often think is, "You've just never recognized that." And I think that, uh, you know, we just all need to pay more attention. And these serendipitous things are in, are in front of us. Uh, Susan, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, uh, do you think it had anything to do with the cycling motion itself? Would running on a treadmill have done the same thing, do you think? Or uh, any thoughts about the entrainment? Sure. It's it's really difficult to know exactly what the cause was, but what um, Jay has found in his studies, and if you look at animal literature, we've seen that that high-intensity aerobic exercise is what is likely needed to cause that upregulation of proteins in the brain that might have this neuroprotective effect or neurorestorative effect. So that really launched um, not just additional studies in Parkinson's, but then looking at other disease populations to see how we could potentially harness these similar effects and not looking like that was a hammer and everything else was a nail, but rather how could we customize the the prescription of aerobic exercise to different disease populations to really optimize its ability to potentially have these neuroprotective or neurorestorative effects. So Jay, take us through some of the nuts and bolts. Uh, what were you thinking about trial-wise after, after this experience? Did it formulate right away for you or yeah. what did you come up with? No, that's a great question. So as soon as I got back to the lab, what we did first was we brought a DBS patient in uh, evaluated them using the same uh, assessment. We had a, a, an early version of an iPad, if you will, to measure movement function. And we brought a PDA patient in with DBS, turned him off for four hours, and then had him do the same uh, activity. And uh, that's where it was very striking in terms of their movement patterns are very different. And so 
the, the next trial, right? We tried uh, very, very <laughs> a lot of uh, applications to NIH and other places to uh, do a trial to look at the effects of forced exercise. And the reason we're again we're calling it forced is because they're you know, the person on the on the back, the PD patient, you know, they have to pedal at the same rate as I was pedaling on the front. So in, in some ways, you know, I pedal at 80 to 90 RPMs and Kathy and and Dave, et cetera, they were pedaling at 50 or, you know, or below. And so I was forcing them to pedal at a relatively fast rate. So this, again, 2007, you know, 2008, you know, the, the view of exercise was very different than compared to now. Uh, I still have reviews that from NIH that say, you know, I was foolhardy and I was going to put these people at great risk and you know, someone was going to die because they can't do high intensity uh, exercise. Um, so we sort of begged, borrowed and stole parts and built our first tandem up and did a initial uh, clinical study uh, with uh, Jerry Vitek, who was here at the time. And that was our first study looking at forced or tandem cycling versus uh, voluntary. And we found there was a significant improvement in those patients who were on the tandem with uh, riding with a postdoc uh, compared to people who exercised at the same cardiovascular level or effort, um, but they weren't pedaling as fast. And so this is where it seems like you know, maybe this this fast pedaling plus cardiovascular you know, elevation cardiovascular response uh, is contributing to these changes or these increases in neurotrophic factors that um, we think is the mechanism. But, but again, it, was, uh, it wasn't until we published that that NIH finally gave us a small uh, RO3 to do a feasibility uh, study. And what did that show? Yeah, and the feasibility study was uh, very positive in the sense of it showed that, uh, in, first of all, that nobody died, that PD patients can actually exercise um, and they can show cardiovascular uh, benefits or have a cardiovascular response. And second, that the individuals with forced exercise actually had an improved level of uh, uh, improvement on their uh, UPDRS, their clinical ratings. Uh, and importantly, that was a very important study because we also partnered with uh, Mark Lowe and, and uh, Mike Phillips in imaging and we showed for the first time that high-intensity exercise actually used the same pattern of activations that anti-Parkinsonian medication did through MRI studies. And I think that was the, the study that really put us on the map in terms of, you know, here we are, you know, doing a lower extremity exercise, and we have improvements in the upper extremity, despite the fact they weren't doing anything with their hands. Uh, and we showed improvements or changes in uh, brain function that looked very similar to what you get when you uh, administer anti-Parkinsonian medication. So I'm just going to take a slight deviation here with you. So if you have a Parkinsonism patient that's a DOPA unresponsive patient, have you looked at any of those patients? Do they respond or have you not looked at that group? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we haven't looked at that uh, systematically. I can tell you that, again, uh, you know, people have tried this and, you know, on one-offs and, and people in the field have, uh, and they report back to me that it's effective, but, but I have no real systematic data or any studies uh, to look at those uh, individuals who would be non-responsive. Mm -hmm. Is there an RPM sweet spot? 
Great question. Uh, it looks like based on our data, that seems to be about 75 RPMs, 75 and above seems to be the sweet spot. Um, the concept of exercise and treatment of Parkinson's is not new, right? Charcot you know, thought of this concept a long time ago when after he had noticed, you know, people come to him in a wagon ride or something and they get shaken about and, and uh, they feel better. And so he developed the shaking chair as well as the, as well as the shaking uh, head thing. Turns out they didn't really work. But there's a, a history there in terms of you know, trying to uh, you know, understand how exercise might, uh, might be working here. So duration. So greater than 70 RPMs, how long? Uh, so generally we have 40-minute uh, sessions. So about a five-minute uh, cool or warm-up and a five-minute cool down. So, you know, 40 minutes, three times a week. And, you know, again, to your earlier question of maybe how we were received, early on, th- that concept was, you know, crazy, right? So I remember presenting this data at different uh, clinical meetings, national meetings, and people would stand up and say, oh, I can't believe you, you want me to tell my patients that they have to exercise three times a week for more than eight weeks. And, you know, at first I sort of backed away from it, but then I was like, well, no, that's what the data are saying. And we would never think about, you know, going back to your opening statement about exercise as medicine, we would never think about prescribing some anti-Parkinsonian medication for a patient and saying, you know what, just take this uh, two or three times a week um, at whatever dose you want, or even deep brain stimulation. We would never implant a stimulator and say, eh, you can just use it uh, 14 hours a day. Right. So there is a there is a, a prescription here. And I would also argue that whether how effective medication is or how effective deep brain stimulation is really comes down to how how effective your neurologist or your neurosurgeon is in terms of managing the disease or implanting the electrodes. And I think about this and we've had lots of talks with PD patients. Um, you know, Parkinson's is a disease that really wants to rob you of your control, right? You lose control and it robs you of control. And exercise is one way to, to regain a bit of that control back because they now can take a more active role in their treatment by exercising you know, three times a week at 40 minutes. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Patients always ask me or families always ask me, what can I do to help myself? And Allowing patients some degree of control, I think, is great. Susan, are you in the weeds with these patients? Are you uh, helping get them going? What are you seeing with them on the, your side of things? Yeah, so I joined Jay's lab in 2010, right about when he was coming out with the results of these initial pilot studies. And most of my work has been in stroke. So I really look to see how we could potentially adapt this approach to improve motor recovery in people who have had strokes. So like I said, it wasn't a matter of we have a hammer and and everything is a nail, but rather how could we harness these neuroplastic effects of aerobic exercise? So we changed our model a little bit. And in stroke, we use aerobic exercise to prime the brain um, to improve the motor learning benefits that are associated with traditional rehab or motor task practice. So the model that we developed in stroke and we continue to investigate in clinical trials is about a 45 minute bout of this forced aerobic exercise. 
And again, the, the intent is high rate. So similarly to the Parkinson's patients in stroke, we found that the sweet spot was about 75 RPMs. So we encourage that rate of exercise and we follow it up immediately with upper extremity motor task practice. And we have found in our preliminary studies that those who use this model of aerobic exercise to potentially prime the brain actually had more improvement in motor recovery of the upper extremity than those who did not. Um, and in fact, our control group had twice the dose of just task practice. So again, this implies that there might be some priming that is occurring. So it sounds like frequency is important, but what about intensity? Uh, frequency more important than intensity? Sounds like it. Yeah, so that's a great question, Glenn. Uh, both groups exercise at 60 to 80% of their heart rate reserve from an aerobic standpoint. However, that was not one of the main predictors in motor recovery. And in fact, exercise rate was a bigger predictor um, of motor recovery rather than aerobic exercise. But again, we all we had patients exercising at this moderate to high intensity. Jay, I know it's a little different on the stroke side, but have you seen patients decrease their need for medication? Yeah, so we have actually. Um, and again, I want to emphasize that I'm a PhD and not an MD, so I never encourage anyone to change medication. Uh, these are all decisions that they you know, do uh, in collaboration with their treating physician. And so we have indeed seen people who have uh, decreased the amount of medication uh, fairly dramatically. And the value of that is you know, hopefully it potentially could reduce future levodopa-induced dyskinesias or other uh, complications associated or, or side effects associated with uh, anti-Parkinsonian medication. And uh, the stroke patients, they're able to cycle okay? It's not, you know, if they have a significant leg weakness, they're able to do the procedure, Susan? Yeah, so with the forced exercise model, um, after the, the tandem bicycle, Jay developed a custom-engineered motorized stationary bike. So we've transitioned all of our trials to this semi-recumbent stationary bike that, again, has a motor that supplements the individual's voluntary efforts so they can achieve that cadence that is set by the therapist. So with that motor-assisted bicycle, they're able to do that. We've also looked at voluntary rate exercise where individuals are using just a standard recumbent bicycle. And there are several who are able to achieve the intensity that we see with forced exercise patients as well. So there's certainly a, a component that those who have less disability and can achieve that intensity can probably have similar outcomes as those who are on the forced exercise bicycle. And Susan, have you seen any improvements in areas of stroke relation that you wouldn't think would get improved with exercise or not necessarily? Yes. In fact, what we're, what we're looking at now is changes in walking capacity and gait. And previously it was really thought that in stroke patients, task specificity was needed to elicit improvements in other, in other functions. So for example, in order for walking to improve, you have to practice walking. So cycling and walking um, aren't aren't uh, the same, but they have similar enough characteristics that we're seeing a carryover from intensive cycling interventions to improvements in walking. And we've seen improvements in gait velocity, walking capacity, and, and importantly, patients are not demonstrating 
in worsening compensatory strategies in order to walk faster, we're seeing that their biomechanics of gait are actually improving as a result of the cycling intervention. So we're finding that you know, the old adage of killing two birds with one stone is, is absolutely happening here. We're seeing improvements in cardiovascular function, which was already known in, in previous studies, improvements in motor recovery of the arm. And again, this is um, with a lower extremity aerobic exercise intervention and improvements in walking capacity. So we feel that this intervention can potentially reduce disability, so one of the things we're looking at now is the cost effectiveness of this intervention because aerobic exercise is not covered in patients who have stroke, um, yet we see a lot of benefits to it. So if we can show that we're reducing disability, improving community reintegration, and all at a lower cost, then we're hoping insurance companies will start to cover this intervention and this approach. So, you know, one of the most uh, challenging things for patients is if their language is affected. Uh, any possibility of any improvement in language skills, even though I know you're not exercising those areas at all? Um, we haven't done formal studies in that. Um, but again, I'll go to what Jay has said, that we've had anecdotal re reports from patients and their spouses that their aphasia has improved. And in fact, I had one patient literally yesterday who's wife told me that the speech therapist indicated that since she had enrolled in our study, his improvements in speech had improved. This is an area I would love to investigate formally in the future, but um, we haven't. It's just been anecdotal responses. And, and those are the things that keep us going. And I think that, uh, you know, as we mentioned early on, we just need to be good observers. Absolutely. And look for things outside the area that we're looking at. And that's where really the excitement is. You know, I'm a neuro-oncologist and there's a nice study done. Maybe we need to send some of our patients over and think about doing some studies with you. Uh, but there was a nice study done a number of years ago, and it's always the chicken and the egg. But they looked at uh, grade three and grade four gliomas, sort of the glioblastoma, anaplastic astrocytoma, the very aggressive high-grade brain tumors. And they saw that patients that were able to exercise five days a week uh, at a brisk walk pace for a minimum of 30 minutes, on average, lived twice as long as those that did not. And again, it's always hard to know the chicken and the egg. Maybe they were functionally better anyways. Maybe they had decreased risk of blood clots. Maybe their blood sugar was better controlled and, and that was good. But uh, I think in the brain tumor area, also a lot of potential fruitful uh, data or things that we could look at. And, and uh, maybe we'll have to talk offline at some point of, of, of things that we could do in the future uh, for this, but quite excited about your results. So what about outside stroke? Uh, unless you want to add something else about the movement disorders or the stroke group before we move on. Anything else to add? No, not really. But I think to your uh, question, you know, to Susan about um, where else have you made these observations or, you know, what else has changed maybe that we didn't expect. You know, we had some in Parkinson's, for example, who uh, I remember coming in and one guy said, hey, Doc, uh, I could smell my wife making onions for the first time in, in 10 years. And then another guy said, uh, uh, you know, I never thought I had body odor until I started this trial, and now I can start to smell, right? And we all know that 
you know, loss of smell, anosmia is one of the very early signs, really a, almost a prodromal sign of Parkinson's. And so, uh, again, that led us to start doing the UPS at the University of Penn uh, smell identification test. And we actually published on that to show that it, uh, this type of exercise would change um, uh, reduced anosmia um, as well. You know, so I think those are things that um, give us hope that, it, that again, it, it's not a hammer and everything's a nail, but that we're actually changing brain function uh, and the operation of the central nervous system, which uh, is, is very exciting for me. Yeah, you know, we always look at risk-benefit, and the risk seems pretty low. Uh, benefit uh, on the positive side. Yeah, uh, I would agree. So what about uh, work in other areas of neurology, Alzheimer's, uh, MS? You guys doing anything there? Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, one of them in terms of is, is related to, to Alzheimer's. And uh, this, this many ways was a combination of the observation of some of our work in Parkinson's where we showed improvements in uh, executive functioning. And then also the great work that uh, Dr. Steve Rayo has done uh, already in some exercise studies uh, with uh, individuals who are APOE4 positive. So Dr. Rayo and I just recently got a, a grant to study the effects of high-intensity exercise on you know, decreasing the conversion rate of those individuals who are APOE4 positive to Alzheimer's, right? So there's about a 20 or plus percent conversion rate. And so what we have is we have two groups of individuals who are all APOE4 positive, and one group is you know, doing usual and customary care, and they're fairly sedentary, whereas the other group is randomized to a home exercise program uh, using a Peloton cycle. And we're monitoring to, to evaluate, does, the, does exercise uh, change that conversion rate? Based on some of Steve's earlier data, we are clearly hypothesizing that it does. Um, and then associated with that, we're, we're doing a tremendous amount of imaging and other neurocognitive testing there, again, to see if we can, we can change that trajectory or that conversion. So, Jay, I'm a, I'm a runner, but uh, maybe I need to get back on my bike a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, well, your knees at some point are going to force you to get back on a bike, right? So <laughs> they're, uh, they're already talking to me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, that that's a great point. You know, we, we use cycling primarily because we can control a lot of variables and we can measure a lot of things from uh, the cycle. So that's great. Um, but it is in you know, by no means the panacea to the mode of exercise, right? Um, you know, certainly treadmill walking is good, uh, uh, even rowing, things like that. Um, the challenge is you know, safety, especially when you're talking about a patient population. Um, you know, and we're asking them to exercise at high intense, or relatively high intense rates and, and uh, cardiovascular parameters there. So sometimes coupled with you know, mobility issues, the treadmill may not be the safest. So, uh, but again, if, if there, it's not a panacea. I mean, cycling is not the panacea here. And what about MS? Uh, you know, I seem to recall in my older days that UTOS phenomena, if people get heated up uh, neurologically, it affects transmission and the MS patients could get a little bit worse. So I guess if they're exercising and getting too hot, maybe that could be a negative. Uh, are you seeing anything with the MS patients? Is that an issue or not an issue? 
No, that's a that's a great question. So um, it, in the last summer, we launched a feasibility a pilot study um, where we're enrolling 20 participants in that. And we were ready with cooling vests just in case that would occur. But in fact, all of them have tolerated the intervention without any negative side effects that way. And the reason we started with this feasibility to primarily, or the study to primarily look at feasibility was precisely that. Can this population tolerate the intensity that we think is necessary to result in this upregulation of neurotrophic factors to potentially improve either their symptoms or, you know, there are some animal models that are showing exercise can even promote remyelination, which I, I know we're a long ways off of demonstrating that in humans, but based on some animal models, if we can uh, even look at uh, exercising at an intensive rate with people with MS, then we potentially have some promising things to look forward to. Well, you guys have convinced me I'm going for a run tonight <laughs> at a high rhythmic intensity. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Jay and Susan, you guys made me believers. Uh, I'm very excited about the work that you're doing, and I think everybody should be excited out there. And uh, I'm really looking forward to extrapolating to other neurologic disorders and, and hearing the great work that you're doing on this very interesting research uh, topic. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Glenn. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Glenn. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.